All right, we are back on our uh, on our on our good news show here on Radio Parallax, and I would like to note one bit of good news: the fact that Mark Williams was fired over at KFBK. According to Sam McManus, writing in the Media Savvy column in the Sacramento Bee, Mark Williams' firing has angered some conservatives, mentioning a one eye care company, which apparently thought that, that it, uh, without its uh, right-wing spokesman, their LASIK eye surgery shouldn't be advertised on, on KFBK. Now, if you remember Mark Williams, uh, back in the year 2000, he organized, he actually spearheaded and organized a demonstration of 5,000 people on the Capitol steps to protest what he described as the Democrats' attempt to steal the election. He also organized numerous massive demonstrations, 4,000 people to support our troops, hundreds of people to observe the, quote, Yellow Ribbon Day, unquote. I'm wondering about the legality of such a call to action, telling listeners to go out and go on the Capitol steps and get placards and protest. Uh, Isn't that against FCC regulations? If so, one wonders why Mark Williams wasn't fired six years ago. According to Sam McManus, Mark Williams is going to appear on Christine Kraft's show on KSAC, 1240 AM, uh, uh, last Thursday to talk about his firing, but he was kicked out of the studio because he brought his dog Casey with him. Apparently the, apparently the manager <laughs> came out and objected to Casey's presence, and Williams refused to tie the dog up outside. He just basically stomped off and didn't, didn't go forward with the interview. He later apologized uh, to Kraft for canceling at the last minute. But I did get a kick out of the fact that, according to Mark Williams, uh, Casey the dog is a trained and registered service animal and is fully protected under federal law. Now, apparently the New York Times wrote about this recently. It's the latest craze among pet owners. They declare their dogs service animals, putting them in the same category, or attempting to put them in the same category as guide dogs for the blind, and thus circumventing the no-animal rules in restaurants, hotels, and airplanes. The paper quoted a professor from Manhattan, Aphrodite Klamar Cohen, who said, When I travel, I tell hotels up front that Alexander Dog Cohen is coming, and he's my emotional needs dog. He's necessary for my mental health. I would find myself at loose ends without him. Anyway, Mark Williams is welcome anytime to come on Radio Parallax and talk about his firing. But if he does, we're going to ask him about his uh, about how it is in the year 2000. He sniffed out the Democratic attempt to steal the election in Florida. So I know that's kind of a negative story, but as far as, as, far as we're concerned, uh, that, that belongs on the Good News Show. And so does the following from the, uh, from the Chicago Tribune, May 26th story. The Federal Communications Commission is investigating allegations that dozens of TV stations aired corporate advertisements masquerading as news stories. The article notes that federal regulations require that broadcast stations disclose the corporate backers of video news releases or face a maximum fine of $32,000 for each violation and possible revocation of their licenses. The FCC probe was initiated in response to a report from the Center for Media and Democracy in Madison, Wisconsin. We, of course, had John Stauber on the show last year from the Center for Media and Democracy to talk about video news releases, which frankly are not anything new. This has been going on for years. But the good news is... 
the FCC at least is now finally looking into it. And we will do a follow-up on that, hopefully with uh, Dr. John Stauber. Now, when I was a student here at this university, it was believed to have had uh, possibly the best genetics department in the nation, uh, having at one point G. Ledyard Stebbins, Theodosius Dobzhansky, and Francisco Ayala on uh, the faculty. But uh, curiously, genetics has taken a, a, a strange new turn versus the rules of Gregor Mendel when it's clear now that certain traits are being passed along um, from generation to generation, whether you get the genes for the trait or not. The explanation seems to lie in RNA, the molecule whose main role is to act as a template for translating DNA into proteins. This is very curious stuff. We have time today only to mention it. But I promise you we're going to follow up on the story of epigenetics and where this may lead science. This, of course, isn't proving Mendel wrong, isn't, isn't proving the genetics we know up to now wrong. It just means, as often is the case in science, that our, that our understanding is incomplete and due to be refined sometime soon. And speaking of science marching forward, we would like to cite the skeptics column from Scientific American, Dr. Michael Shermer also been a guest on this show in the past. Dr. Shermer has now come on board, uh, even though he is a professional skeptic, to noting that it seems clear that global warming is really going on. Frankly, we're shocked to see it took this long to get that into writing, to get that into a column in Scientific American. He told us years ago that the evidence was now becoming clear that this was the case. But uh, Michael Shermer noted in the current issue of Scientific American that he attended the Technology Entertainment Design Conference in Monterey, where former Vice President Al Gore delivered the single finest summation of the evidence for global warming I have ever heard. He mentioned Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, which we have not seen yet, but uh, certainly intend to, and we hope you, dear listener, will do likewise. He also cited four books that have brought him to the flipping point. Archaeologist Brian Fagan's The Long Summer, geographer Jared Diamond's Collapse, journalist Elizabeth Colbert's Field Notes from a Catastrophe, and biologist Tim Flannery's The Weathermakers. He summarized the column by saying, Environmental skepticism was once tenable. No longer. It's time to flip from skepticism to activism. Same issue of the magazine has a fabulous article on the secrets of super volcanoes, which, which, which we have absolutely no time for today, so I'm only going to mention it and get to it uh, next week or the week after. But in a uh, somewhat related uh, uh, story about uh, world global climate change, it appears that uh, there's a smoking gun coming out of the, the satellite data of Australia and Antarctica revealing the remains of a giant crater on the Antarctic continent, which appears to be dated 250 million years ago, the time of the Permian mass extinction, the most significant extinction of life on Earth that has taken place uh, really over the past 600 million years. 90 to 95% of all marine life was wiped out, including the, uh, the famous trilobite, which you're probably familiar with from fossils. 80% of life on land was wiped out. They now believe that this very large meteor, perhaps 48 kilometers wide, slammed into uh, Antarctica at this time and may have actually induced uh, Australia to split off from Antarctica in what was then a supercontinent of Gondwanaland. 
There'd been some arguments in the last year or two that it appeared that it wasn't a meteor uh, that did the Permian extinction, but now uh, with the finding of this large crater under the ice in Antarctica, it's now swung back, I think, in favor of an extraterrestrial source of this mass extinction. We will talk more about this in the future as well, but uh, this is exciting kind of stuff from the world of science. All right, we've only got a few minutes to go, and it appears that our uh, ex-general manager has uh, been indisposed, perhaps from the slosh ball game yesterday. And uh, Todd is always busy, so I want to talk to both these guys about the expansion of KDVS, but that, too, was going to have to wait for a future program. We shall target it for next week. So let's close instead with three stories about plants from the past. The first has to do with the Wolemi pine, nicknamed the Pinosar, uh, which has to do with the fact that in 1994, a small, strand, a small stand of 15 pines was discovered outside of uh, Sydney, Australia, which was uh, unknown to science. And when they looked into the matter, they discovered this was actually an ancient species that went back 250 million years. But as far as anybody knew, they had not made it uh, all the way up to the present. They, they'd start disappearing 30 million years ago. But uh, they've taken these plants, they've propagated them, and they actually held an auction to this, for the sale of these trees to collectors around the world to try and raise money to protect them and to, of course, uh, spread them everywhere. They seem to be growing all over the world in all sorts of different climates, so it appears that the, uh, the Pinosar has dodged a bullet when it comes to extinction. And in the 19th century, Egyptologists discovered the remains of a palm tree, one of three different species in the various tombs of the pharaohs and other, uh, other tombs throughout Egypt. It took them 30 years to actually find any examples of this palm tree, which turned up only sporadically in some odd places. And over the years, it appeared that those trees uh, disappeared. But according to New Scientist magazine, that they have found a stand or two in the deepest recesses of Egypt, and efforts are now being made to preserve those, and like the Pinosar, spread them around to keep them from dying out. What is amazing about the tree is that it was so familiar to the ancient Egyptians that it had its own hieroglyph. And archaeologists have found fruits of the tree uh, dating from 2500 BC up to the 7th century, all the length of the Nile. Somehow it fell out of favor and people stopped planting it. That's why it's only found in remote locations. But uh, hopefully in the next few uh, years to decades, that'll be reversed. Perhaps the story of the Argon palm will go the way of the Maya nut. In a somewhat parallel story, it turns out that 2,000 years ago, the Mayans planted millions of nut trees in the Central American rainforests, and the nuts were their staple food. Well, the trees are still there, but the modern descendants of the Maya have forgotten about the forest food so that, um, you know, it's fed to animals, but uh, people stopped eating it. They thought of it as a famine food. Well, biologist Erica Volman, the daughter of an Iranian-born doctor, went down to Guatemala, uh, took a look at these nuts that were laying around, started asking people, have you thought about eating these? <laughs> and as people started doing it again, they realized that, uh, you know, this can be made into a flower and is again has the potential of becoming a staple food in the region. It's called the Maya nut, also the Ramon, the Ojoje, the Ujuxte, and the Masika. This does seem too good to be true, but apparently the efforts of this American biologist now has hundreds of villages in Central America eating and selling Maya nuts. They're making cookies out of it. 
They're uh, grinding it up. They're making soup. It's just it's an amazing story. And a high note upon which to end today's program. We want to thank very much Corey Burton for uh, his impersonations and, and talk with us about uh, being a voice actor in Hollywood. We'd like to wish actor Christopher Walken the best of luck in his run for the presidency. And I thank Mr. Edward McMillan for his fine work today producing today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock. And now, stay tuned for Todd. Maybe he'll tell you a little bit about the radio business. But uh, if not, we will on this show next week. <laughs>